Sorry for the circumstance that puts me before you this morning. Jim Fleming has been a marvelous gift to the church, and I pray for his return. Our desire is to have him back, back next week to preach. He had a, had a sermon entitled, Oops. And I wasn't sure if that was because he wasn't feeling well or if uh, he had some vision that I might be taking his place. But this morning, it's my intent to leave all the oops to him, and uh, we'll look forward to his return. I know enough not to teach Daniel this morning. That would be a big oops. I am going to get close, and that wasn't necessarily planned. I didn't realize that until uh, this morning. I was thinking, oh, I hope Jim wasn't going to take a, a side road to... Uh, Habakkuk. Um, I also knew better than to look at something controversial. I thought I'd leave that to the paid staff. <laughs> My wife encouraged me to be encouraging. She's always doing that. I need to be. Uh, an hour after Taylor informed me I'd be preaching, I had a call that I needed a text and a sermon title and an outline. It was due in about an hour. So, um, yes, I'm, I'm doing something I very rarely have done in my life, and that is I'm doing a sermon I've done before. Um, so rather, ready or not, here we go. This week, Clarice and I were at Fall Creek Falls State Park with three couples with whom we attended college 50 years ago. In preparation for that trip, Clary suggested I look at Psalm 90 for a devotional, and verse 10 caught my attention. The years of your life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. And I think we have a couple people celebrating that today. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Their span is but toil and trouble. That is the days of our lives. In reality, if you are a people, and I perceive that several of you here are here, you're not a stranger to pain, dis disappointment, trouble, toil, or sorrow in your life. Or if you're not familiar with those, get ready to meet their acquaintance. God's ways are not our ways is a phrase Christians often use. Sometimes we say it out of comfort. Sometimes we say it out of confusion. Sometimes we say it because this whole world in general and our little part of it in particular is such a mess that we have a hard time understanding how our mess jives with God and his presence in our lives. Habakkuk is one of the, who freely expresses his concerns, his frustrations, his doubts to God. As he does, he gets a message loud and clear that God's ways are not our ways God is an entirely different means of working than we do, 
And if we're going to take him seriously, one of the things we've got to get straight is the fact that God approaches our problems in a manner much different than we would do if we were in charge, which we're not. I trust that by now you have used your table of contents and found Habakkuk in your Bible. The book begins with a burden, which is another word for an oracle. The prophet's burden. The burden is a heavy weight that rests on the shoulders of the prophet. In this case, it's Habakkuk. Habakkuk is unique among the prophets in that he doesn't write a message to people, which well, does for us, but he wasn't writing to people. It's more of a dialogue between the prophet and God. It's like a journal where he writes his complaint and then records God, God's answer. It's a book that begins with sobs, but it ends with a song. And so we find him in chapter 1, sighing loudly, so loud we can hear him today. Habakkuk was ministering in this, to the southern tribe of Judah about the time Daniel was taken into captivity, which is 605. And in, in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 1, we have a picture of life in Judah at the time. We read, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked, wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. Here is a man who is disturbed about his nation. He sees everything going wrong. The people are living in wickedness. There's unrest and violence, injustice and oppression throughout the land. Those who have the responsibility to correct things do nothing about it. When the whole matter is brought before the courts, the courts themselves are corrupt. Sound familiar? Notice the words, how long, why? Those are questions we invariably ask God and he most often never answers. Why, Habakkuk says, does he have to cry out violence and hear no answer? In Jeremiah 22, 17, Jehoiakim is a king of Judah and he's described this way. But you have eyes and heart only for your dishonest gain, for shedding innocent blood, and for practicing oppression and violence. Isn't that a good legacy for a king? 
as we listen to the news, we may have similar international as well as national concerns. And yet, those things can easily be drowned out if we're experiencing some personal crisis that brings overwhelmingly, overwhelming pain to our lives. You're not thinking national and international issues if your family's in turmoil, if your health is in jeopardy, or your livelihood is threatened. What is happening elsewhere is not of immediate concern. But finding stability in an unstable world is a challenge we all face, no matter what our life circumstances. And the tragedy, as far as Habakkuk was concerned, was that in all the tumult, in all the chaos, in all the things that seemed to be going wrong, God didn't seem to be working. He didn't seem to be waking up. Perhaps we too are sometimes tempted to think that way. To think that God is not caring about the struggles of our own individual lives. Now Habakkuk is a man of God. And he knows that the thing to do with a problem is to take it to the Lord. And he's been doing that. He's been praying about his problem, but he does not get an answer. So in bewilderment, he cries out, Lord, how long do I have to keep this up? This crying out to you like this, you do nothing about it. I've been watching for a change, watching for an outbreak of revival, watching for something to happen, yet nothing happens. How long must I continue? God never tells Habakkuk why. And God never answers how long. Habakkuk looks at his world and says, this nation reeks. And if you are the holy God of heaven, how can you stand back and let this condition continue? Lord, step in. Help us out. I'm watching it go down the tubes. I'm wondering where you are. Do you even care a little bit? Perhaps you felt that way a day or two. You've prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and nothing happens. The silence of heaven can be deafening. Every one of us is named Habakkuk and we share in his being perplexed. But God answers Habakkuk in verses 5 through 11. He says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their judge and dignity go forth from themselves. 
Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come to for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. In other words, God says, I've been answering your prayer, Habakkuk. You accuse me of silence. But I haven't been silent. You just not do not know how to recognize my answer because my ways are not your ways. Habakkuk is saying, give me your game plan. God says, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. Habakkuk says, tell me. God says, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Habakkuk says, I can't believe it. So there's a little nation that's beginning to rise in world history. These people are bitter, hostile, ruthless, and cold-blooded. And God says to the prophet, I'm behind this. They're going to be powerful as any nation on earth has, has ever been. And they will sweep through lands conquering everything. And it will look as though nothing can stop them. These people will not have any God at the center of their life. Their own might is their God. And they trust in their own strength. And I'm behind the rise of this people. And this is the answer to your prayer. Now that is astounding, isn't it? Habakkuk did not know what to make of this if he thought he had a problem when he started. He is even more perplexed now. And this is what bothers many people. People look at what is happening and what has happened in the world and they're perplexed as to why God allows things to happen the way they do. Why does he permit such terrible events to occur in human history? How can a just and loving God allow this? And that is where Habakkuk is. He was puzzled by this strange silence. And when he heard how God was moving, he could not understand that either. But then he does a very wise thing. And the next section of this book is a most important passage because it tells us how to handle this kind of problem. What do you do when you're confronted with this kind of threat to your faith? Notice what the prophet does in verses 12 and 13. 
He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What is he doing? He's thinking about God, not based on his own imagination about what God should be like. But he's thinking about God as God has revealed himself previously to Israel. And Habakkuk starts thinking about his character and about his words. Wait a minute, Habakkuk says. Are you not from everlasting? Lord, aren't you going to come to our rescue? We are your people. You've made everlasting promises to us. We can't be wiped out. Aren't you going to deal with this situation? Look how bad it is. Now come on, prove your character. Well, God had told Habakkuk, all right, this is what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk responded, good night, God. The Chaldeans, you appointed them to correct us. God, we are wicked, but they are more wicked than we are. How can, we be, how can we be, you be holy and bring the Chaldeans to judge us? How can you use something more wicked to clean out something that is less wicked? And of course, you know, he's, when he's talking about the Chaldean, he's talking about the people in Babylon that took Daniel that we've been studying about. By the way, do you know the answer to those questions about how God can use wicked people who are more wicked to clean up something that is less wicked? Do you know the answer to that question? All I know is that God's ways are not my ways. That's all I know. So here's Habakkuk, totally confused because he's not God. He's uncertain. He doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to pray. So we come to chapter 2 and verse 1, which is a pivot in the book. It says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and I, what I will answer concerning my complaint. Habakkuk stands at his guard post. He's apparently persuaded there's something cross-wired in his head and he needs reproof from God and he's going to wait for God to speak. So in chapter 2, we see Habakkuk sitting tight. We are seldom more effective in all of our lives than, we make a than when we make a determinative effort to sit and wait on God. Stop the complaining. Stop the wrestling. Stop the inner churning. 
In verse 2, we see that God answers Habakkuk. The word translated answered in verse 2 conveys the idea of being favorable, docile, amenable in one's response. In other words, God smiled when he answered. Oh, Habakkuk, I'm glad you stopped and listened. I'm glad you waited. That pleases me. Now I'm ready to answer you. And God said a number of things that Habakkuk needed to hear. He knew all about the Chaldeans and he spells out their sure doom, which we'll get to in Daniel 5. And he knows your enemy. He knows the frustration you are under. He knows why. He knows how long. He knows what it is going to do in your life. And he knows the depth to which it will go before it will go away. God says, okay, now that you stop talking, Start writing. Verse 2 reads in chapter 2, The Lord answered me, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. In other words, Habakkuk, I'm going to tell you the answer. Now I want you to write it down. I want you to write it so plainly that anyone who reads it will be able immediately to tell the answer abroad. Spread it over the land. Then God adds these significant words in verse 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God is saying, I have a plan, Habakkuk. This isn't going to happen right away. There's going to be a lapse in time, but it will come. Such is the character of God's revelation. First, God says an event will happen. Then he says, don't you worry about what happens in between. Even though it looks like everything is going wrong, what I've said will happen. It's going to happen. And if it seems to delay, wait for it. It will come. You live by faith, not fear. Then God goes on to state that principle that is quoted three times in the New Testament and forms a basis for perhaps the greatest movement that God has ever had. He says these words in verse 4. Behold... His soul is puffed up, referring to Chaldeans. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. These words are quoted in New Testament in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. These are the words that lit the fire in the heart of Martin Luther, quoted by Paul in Romans. The righteous shall live by faith. Not by circumstances, 
not by reasoning or by human effort, but by his faith in what God has said. God says they are proud. Their souls are not right within them. But in contrast to them, the righteous will live by their faith or faithfulness. If you live by feelings, Habakkuk, you'll continue to be curled up in a corner, quaking with fear. But you live by faith. You listen to me. You trust me. You speak for me. You write my message. You live by faith. Those are your marching orders. And those are your marching orders, First Evan. There are marching orders for all Christians to enter into the living of every moment of our lives in all that we do by faith. We the just, the justified ones, those declared righteous before God, possessing an alien righteousness. We are called by God to live lives of faith, to live faithfully before him, lies rooted and resting in what God has revealed. Throughout the rest of the chapter, there's a very interesting analysis of the Chaldeans, what God plans to do with them. To summarize, God says to the prophet, now Habakkuk, don't you worry about the Chaldeans. It is true that I have pure eyes than to behold evil, and it's also true that I'm raising up this people to judge the nation of Israel, but in turn, I will judge the Chaldeans. Daniel chapter 5. The very thing in which they trust will prove to be their downfall. The very gods will overthrow, their very gods will overthrow them. And after describing the Chaldeans in verse 5, he says that there are woes they must face. Notice verse 6, 9, 12, 15, 19, all have these woes. When God writes woe over nation, it is finished. God promises the ultimate condemnation of the people of Chaldea. They are living on borrowed time. Well, Habakkuk's circumstances is not a bit different. But he's listened to God and he's changed. The last words of the book say, for the choir director on my Gibson guitar, <laughs> Habakkuk has composed a psalm a song that is highly emotional, poetic form. It's a grand piece, the hallelujah chorus of the day. So in chapter 3, we find him singing out a most remarkable prayer. Notice how he begins. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of your years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk began this book by saying, Lord, why don't you do something? 
Now he says, Lord, be careful. Don't do too much. In wrath, remember mercy. I see you're working, Lord, but remember in the midst of it that you're still a God of mercy. This prayer is one of the most remarkably beautiful poetic passages in all of Scripture. In it, the prophet goes back and remembers what God has done in the past. That is what convinces Habakkuk that God can be trusted. He rests upon events that have already occurred, events which cannot be questioned or taken away or shaken in any way. And this is where faith must rest. We do not live by blind faith. We live with a God who has acted in time and space and has indelibly recorded his workings and his will in the progress of human events. This is a kind of God we have. The God who actually moves in human history to accomplish events that no man can duplicate. As the prophet thinks of all this, his mind goes out to the greatness of God, and this is the way he concludes. Verse 16, chapter 3. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk asked God to show him his might in verse 2. He didn't realize what he was asking for. Now he knows what God is going to do. He sees what is coming. Evidently, the vision was quite a display. His heart pounded. His lips quivered. He felt about, the, the, about to collapse as his bones were in the state of decay. He was trembling. The fiercest, fearsomeness grips him. He senses a terror. But Habakkuk's confidence and hope are renewed. He said he would wait patiently for the day of calamity upon Chaldea to come to the nation's oppressors. That's Daniel 5. Notice how he concludes in verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the oil fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no heard in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on, high, on my high places. What is he saying? He's saying that though the circumstances may seem desperate, nothing to drink, Nothing to eat, nothing in his bank accounts, no flock, no cattle. Yet he declares that the Lord is his strength. He will exalt in the Lord and rejoice in the God of his salvation. His interaction with God, reflection upon God and his revelation has changed him. 
Gone is the inner churning and wrestling and anxious striving over the approaching Chaldeans. Replaced by the awe of the awesomeness of God. Creating a steadfast confidence and and reliance upon his God. He has been reminded of the God he serves. His sign has been transformed into a song. Have you discovered that though the problem remains and the pressure is still there, there can be a strengthening of the inner person that makes the heart rejoice and be glad even in the midst of difficulty because of who God is. That is what Habakkuk discovered. The Lord himself, he says, is my strength. It is not his circumstances that give him confidence, but his God. Have you discovered like Habakkuk that though you have nothing else, with God alone there is hope, With God alone, there is salvation. And if you haven't, but know that you're desperate for hope, that you need God in your life, a God who's sufficient for your deepest needs. After the service, see a cross over to your right in the back, and someone will be there to talk to you about the glorious good news of hope that God is available to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me very quickly leave you with five lasting life lessons from the little, this little book, and I will be very quick with them. Number one, God can handle all of our questions, but he will answer only a few. He answers all we need. Number two, God's purposes are greater than our problems. We are part of something much larger than ourselves. Number three, waiting strengthens our patience and deepens our perspective. The short view is usually the false view of life. First impressions are often wrong impressions. Initial impressions of God's working are usually incorrect ones. So in waiting, we have our perspective deepened and our patience is strengthened. Number four, the bottom line of faith is not silence of all of our doubts but to make us rest in the certainty of God. Habakkuk didn't understand everything. He never knew why or how long, but he rested trusting in God. So number five, trust in God gives us stability in the midst of an unstable world. It is how we live right when everything seems wrong. So as we live this week, let us keep our attention on God 
for his ways are not our ways. Right thinking about God leads to right kind of living, a life of unshakable trust in the God through seemingly unstable times. And that gives us something to sing about all the days of our lives. Let us pray. Father in heaven, may we live by faith before you. May we trust our lives and the challenges you bring to each one of us into your hands as you carry out your plans and purposes to accomplish your sovereign will. May we exalt in you and rejoice in you, for you are our strength, the God of our salvation. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.